Hello, and welcome to the Permanente Medicine Podcast. I'm Chris Grant, your host and Chief Operating Officer of the Permanente Federation, an organization representing the shared interests of eight Permanente medical groups, over 22,000 physicians, and 80,000 employees of the Kaiser Permanente organization. These podcasts are designed to get to know some of the most innovative minds in healthcare in a casual setting. Joining me on the phone today is C.C. Connolly, a nationally recognized healthcare leader and longtime friend. C.C. currently serves as the president and CEO of the Alliance of Community Health Plans, working closely with healthcare organizations to deliver greater value for America's healthcare system. CC has spent most of her career in healthcare, first as a national correspondent for the Washington Post, then in thought leadership roles at two international consulting firms. She is a leading thinker in disruptive forces shaping the healthcare industry and has been a trusted advisor to C-suite executives, including me. CC is co-author of the book Landmark, The Inside Story of America's Healthcare Law and What It Means for All of Us. She has also covered six presidential campaigns as a journalist. Good afternoon, Cece, and thank you for joining us. Chris, thank you for having me. Well, let's start with a bit about yourself. Where you grew up and how your youth shaped your interests in journalism, politics, and healthcare. <laughs> well, I grew up outside of Philadelphia in the suburbs, and I went to school at Boston College. And BC is uh, really where I got the journalism bug. Uh, that's a school that has a very uh, traditional liberal arts education with the Jesuits, and you get exposed to so many wonderful, rich subjects. And as you mentioned, had a, sort of a first career in journalism, 25 years in the news business, and then uh, sort of morphed over into healthcare first for many years, writing about healthcare for the Washington Post, discovering just that it is such an important and fascinating subject that I saw in healthcare an opportunity to continue learning, I imagine, for all of my days. And also, I hope to be able to contribute a little bit in a positive way to society. Well, that's terrific. And obviously, bringing that journalistic aspect, which is often investigatory to an industry that's in such transformation, I think is almost an ideal fit. Could you you know, talk a little bit about your role at ACHP and, and give the audience a familiarity with the organization? Yes, I would be happy to. As you pointed out, Chris, we are so pleased to have the Permanente Medical Groups as one of our I like to say our members are the cream of the crop in healthcare. So all of our ACHP members are provider-aligned, nonprofit community health plans and organizations across the United States. They believe very deeply in the model that you all embody, which is to bring the clinical teams, those doctors, nurses, pharmacists, all of the clinical folks, right as close as possible to your health insurance people. And when you get those two groups, the plans and the providers, really collaborating and integrating and just being aligned around common mission and purpose 
as well as financial incentives, we believe that that is the model that presents the bright hope for the American healthcare system. We believe that it is best for consumers, patients, for communities. And I also think, and I'd be very interested in your perspective on this, Chris, but our sense is in talking to physicians around the country that they tend to be happiest when they're in those integrated configurations as well because they like having that that partnership and that collaboration all very much centered around the patient. Absolutely. No, I think, you know, having the fully integrated system and all of the support capabilities and administrative capabilities at their disposal, including technology, you know, enables them to focus the vast majority of their time and energy directly in the exam room, in the OR with the patient. So I'm going to try to link your early career as a journalist with your current career as a thought leader in healthcare. You spent a good portion of your professional career at the Washington Post. What's the most exciting story you ever covered as a journalist? Oh, boy. Um, Exciting. You know, that's such a tough one, you know, because some of them are exciting but disturbing. So I certainly, I covered many natural disasters, hurricanes, including Hurricane Katrina, which was a very, very sad story, an important story. I actually ended up staying there in Louisiana for uh, almost five months to not only cover the immediate disaster, but so much of the aftermath. There is one other story in my career that personally meant a lot to me, and this was really when I was making that shift into uh, healthcare reporting. It was about a few months after the Terry Schiavo case in Florida. This is going back now a number of years. A woman who was left on machines for, for a very extended period of time, and there was an incredibly emotional battle between her husband at the time and other family members. And I recall. Uh, literally all of the politicians in Washington got in on the act. And, you know, unfortunate, what was clearly a very difficult private story became very public. Um, we, of course, covered that as a story at the Washington Post. But I then went to my editors sometime after and I said, I'd like to return to that hospice and I'd like to spend 24 straight hours there and write about it. And it was uh, certainly among the most memorable 24-hour period of my life, seeing that actually it's one of probably the most peaceful places on earth, and the respect that the people working in the hospice uh, have toward patients and the family members and the love and the caring And I became very close to two families, one set of parents whose daughter passed away during the 24 hours that I was there. And it stood in such contrast to what everyone described as the circus down there just a couple of months earlier. And I was just, I was personally proud of that story, Chris, because it showed a different side to that. And and I hope that some people read that and and came away with a different perspective. Well, well, thank you for sharing that. And I think that story actually captivated America at the time. And, and that is, it's a great example of a national interest story on a pretty incredibly important topic that 
gets down to the root of an individual and a family mm-hmm. and the struggle that they're that they're dealing with. All right, <laughs> let's shift uh, to your current work and focus. Uh, Cece, you've become an expert on information dissemination and, and behavior change. Why is this important to study? Mm. Well, I'll, I'll tell you uh, one of those little factoids that I still have trouble believing, and that is, though, that we have seen uh, often now through a number of studies that it takes an average of about 17 years, Chris, for new medical breakthroughs to actually reach the physician and the patient right there in the doctor's office. And to stop and think to yourself, you know, if maybe you're a person with a particular cancer diagnosis or Alzheimer's or something, and that brilliant scientist who is developing a new treatment or a therapy or an approach for you, and it could take 17 years to get to your doctor and you, that is just unacceptable. Frankly, it's it's unacceptable, and it's not to point blame at anyone whatsoever. It's just that the amount of medical knowledge that is coming through every single day is just so enormous. And so we here at ACHP wanted to take a look at, you know, if our members with that very special, unique model of the plans and the providers working hand-in-hand, if they were able to accelerate the adoption of evidence-based care. Absolutely. And, you know, I think the 17-year lag that you're citing is is actually quite well documented and studied in the Institute of Medicine's uh, 2001 report on crossing the quality chasm. Why is there often a lag between research findings and, and when new information reaches providers and actually ends up in clinical protocol? Well, I think there's a variety of reasons Chris, but some of what we see in the literature and have learned in uh, talking to so many of the experts is that, first of all, the sheer volume of it has gotten to be so enormous that it's really uh, just so difficult to, to manage that much information constantly coming out. Another is that we know across the United States, and I don't think this is so much the case at Permanente, but certainly in a lot of the other places that I travel to around the country, you may have physician group practices or just independent physicians or hospitals that may not have made the same technology investments and may not have a good modern way to get information rapidly to the clinicians that are on the front lines. So that's a big part of it. We certainly know that there are big economic gaps in the United States. So some of this information is going to reach more affluent communities and health systems than perhaps others that don't have the same resources and wherewithal. And also, We're all human. We learn one set of facts, and it can be difficult to convince humans that know uh, what you learned 10 or 15 years ago may be different now, or you have to change the way you practice medicine, and change is difficult for all of us. So that can be a gap. Even if they get some information, there can be a lot of barriers to actually adopting the newest information. 
And you would hope with the advent of advanced technology and information systems that's now so embedded in the healthcare system that that lag time would shrink. Have you looked at what that lag time means for care? In other words, can you quantify the cost? Can you quantify the the quality of life? Uh, so I may not be the best person for quantifying it, but what I can tell you, for instance, is we know that this lag time is certainly one of the main reasons why we have significant disparities in our United States, uh, health disparities. This is also certainly part of the reason why we know that there is convincing, compelling evidence that about 30% of everything done in our health system today is deemed either waste or low value. So the wrong things are being done, errors, duplication, or you know, this focus on not getting the, the current uh, treatments, therapies, protocols, tests, et cetera, but maybe something outdated, missed opportunities. And a lot of, in our research project here at ACHP and the case studies that we did, you just saw areas of missed opportunity that our members were able to address. So, for instance, um, I'm thinking about Geisinger in central Pennsylvania, uh, looking at hepatitis C, which, of course, uh, is really just such a major threat to our population today. Yet, interestingly, there is a very good treatment. Again, using my my layman's terminology, I'd even use the word cure, but it's very expensive. But Geisinger, in that integrated model where they had the providers, the delivery system, working with the plan together, they they established what they called a hep C care path did a great amount of collaborative work, bringing everyone together, started patients on this therapy that costs about $30,000 for the course, which at the time when they began this, Chris, they believed that a patient needed 12 weeks of that therapy. Well, interestingly enough, through their ongoing work together, the collaboration and the study, they learned that for the majority of patients, it only required an eight-week course of the treatment. Well, as Dr. John Bolger, the chief medical officer at Geisinger, um, remarked to us, that discovery meant that they could treat three patients for the price of two. And when physicians and nurses heard that, they were so excited and activated and energized to stick with this care path because they knew something very meaningful uh, was happening, which was that they were reaching and curing that many more patients because of the collaboration that they did. That's right. And if it gets back to your earlier point on this estimate of 30% of all resources in healthcare may in fact not be needed or may be wasted if you can simply eliminate that, the impact that you can have on the affordability of healthcare, as well as just reaching so many more lives is pretty profound. And I think, you know, numerous examples from really a cure for hepatitis C in nearly all patients to, you know, the the whole epidemic with opioid prescribing that in fact can be eliminated or induction of labor prior to 39 weeks. There just is a whole 
range of unique and profound opportunities where known solutions are out there, but it takes a long, long time for them to be disseminated. So let's talk about the dynamic between health plans and physicians. And, you know, obviously the organization that you lead, the Alliance of Community Health Plans, is there for the health plan industry, but yet you have a deep focus and set of roots in that important relationship between the health plan and the physician. Could you talk a bit about that and and what you see the role of health plans in disseminating information to clinicians is? Yes. And so, Chris, what we set out to do about 18 months ago now with funding from a group that goes by the acronym PCORI, the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, with some grant money from PCORI, we were able to take a look at this unique model of where you get collaboration and in many instances, such as your organization, a total integration, which I think is really the holy grail here because, and again, Chris, it's possible that your listeners may not uh, fully realize or appreciate this, but in many, if not most parts of the United States, your insurance company and your healthcare providers, the doctors, nurses, hospitals, are typically sitting across a bargaining table fighting with each other, and they're fighting over dollars. And that's why I talk about aligning financial incentives. And in the model of our ACHP members, where you have the plan and the provider in concert together, and aligning all of the incentives around the patient, around community health, and shared in the financial risk and reward, if you will, working together, we see over and over again that the health outcomes are better for the individuals, that the customer experience is much greater, consumers feel very positively about their entire experience, it tends to be more convenient, There's greater use of technology such as telehealth, again, in a way that the patient is excited about and embraces. It can save time and paper for physicians. And then overall, that really spreads out to the community because of that partnership. And so thanks to this report and study that we did over the 18 months, we now feel that we have the data and the stories that we we talked about earlier in this conversation to really kind of bring some of that to light. We were surprised that there hasn't been a lot of study of that model. And while we kind of thought it in our bones, it's awfully nice to now have documented it in concrete real-world examples, you know, a a few of which uh, you were just kindly mentioning. And the report that CC is referencing is the recently released report titled Accelerating Adoption of Evidence-Based Care, Payer and Provider Partnerships. That's great. And I can't think of a better person to shine a bright light on the opportunity. You know, you referenced your recently released uh, study and report. Are there some unique education dissemination tools or change management dissemination tools that you saw along the way that you said these need to have a bright light shined on them because they were different and innovative, impactful? Well, I think what we've seen is the full 
suite of strategies that are being utilized out there, and that's why we really concluded that the customized approach is so important. I would also say that we saw some of the best practices when you really got to that word team. And so, yes, you can think of the physician as often the quarterback on that team, but there are a lot of other players, and this really goes to everyone sort of, the phrase in medicine is working to the top of your license, but it essentially means everybody on the team is being empowered and enabled to do their absolutely highest order best work. I love it. And I love your description of working at top of license, empowering every individual to have the greatest impact that they can on that team. So tell us about a few of the case studies that are highlighted in your report and what makes these strong examples. Well, there are some fantastic ones, and we certainly would be remiss if we did not first discuss the Permanente case study around opioids prescribing, which is so important and impactful, which is one of my favorite words, as as my team will tell you. But this actually began looking at the very alarming numbers of opioid prescriptions being written and, of course, all of the uh, terrible things that can come along with opioid uh, abuse and misuse and overuse. And by really bringing together this multidisciplinary group within your organization, physicians, nurses, pharmacists, taking a look at the data, starting with those facts, if you will, and then being able to put together uh, a learning uh, curriculum that offered people information by video, online self-guided modules, team in-person conversations, uh, six-hour workshops for some folks, And it was all around safe opioid prescribing, as well as narrowing that lens a little bit on which clinicians were really the most appropriate for writing some of the scripts for those higher levels of opioids. You know, what we have in our case studies is that in your Northern California region, the number of prescriptions total written came down by 40%. And it was about 30% in Southern California. And the other reason that I just love this story is that because of EU operating now in, in eight distinct regions around the United States, you're able to do something in healthcare that very few are accomplishing. And that is, and you hear a lot of talk about strategies that are replicable and scalable. And that is something that your organization is so uniquely suited to be able to go out and tackle those challenges of replication and scale. And that's really what we need in healthcare if we're going to start to make a big dent in the problems that we have here. Thank you, Cece. And you're right. You know, Kaiser Permanente's framework for curbing opioid prescribing has spread nationally and with really promising results. In fact, I, I know that this is the you know, front page above the crease story today, opioid abuse and addiction, but this was an area that Kaiser Permanente was focused on you know, many years ago, and it's promising to see other organizations today 
aggressively following suit. And on that note, Cece, I'm going to ask you to take out your crystal ball. So we've Ooh. talked a little bit about what shaped you as a journalist and as a healthcare leader. We've talked about your current work, and now I want to look into the future. What do you see if you turn the clock ahead 10 years? How has healthcare policy in America changed? What are the big reforms that you envision? Well, I do think, Chris, that there is movement toward the model that we're discussing here today, the nonprofit community-based model that brings the physicians and health plans and community players all together, uh, much sort of closer surrounding the patient and the consumers in the community. We see that, you know, one of the buzzed phrases in healthcare today is value-based models. I think that's a fancy term for what I'm talking about. But there is some movement in that direction. You think about programs such as Medicare Advantage for senior citizens, which is built on that model and is uh, growing in popularity and saving everybody money, saving consumers money and taxpayers money. So I think that that progress and that um, journey will continue. I don't know that we'll be done in 10 years, I'm sorry to say, but I do expect progress. That's great. And uh, I think we're all, we're all hopeful of that. And, and certainly we're seeing kind of a wave of uh, payment reform, not just on the, on the governmental sectors of business, but certainly on the commercial side as well. CC, on behalf of all of our listeners, I want to thank you for joining us today. We've known each other for a long time, and I just love your relentless pursuit of what's possible, the power of information to drive change in healthcare, and your role in connecting some of the best minds and thinkers in healthcare. That's our show for today. I'm Chris Grant, your host. Thanks for listening to the Permanente Medicine Podcast. You can find and stream our podcast by visiting Permanente.org or by subscribing on iTunes and Google Play. We'll see you next time.